I hope you'll take your Bibles and join me in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 13 is where we'll begin in a moment. This is one of the great paragraphs in the book of Hebrews, maybe uh, be even in much of the New Testament. I will uh, delight to consider it together this morning. I am mindful that uh, as we reflect upon the book of Hebrews, uh, it's a long book and it's difficult uh, for us to keep our, if you will, our eye on the ball. It's difficult to uh, always remember what's the point. Uh, and because we sort of take it paragraph by paragraph, uh, we don't remember how paragraph G compares or connects to paragraph A. So I'll recall, remind you then, as, as uh, we've done many times already, and we'll do again, that uh, this particular paragraph is connected to the opening verses of Hebrews, where he is reminding us that in the past, God has spoken to us by means of the prophets and in various other ways. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And he then launches out into a very long letter that we call the book of Hebrews to explain how God has spoken through Jesus, his son, and why speaking through Jesus, his son, is better. Better in the abstract and better personally. If all you have is the old covenant, you don't have enough. You're lost. You're damned. You're going to hell, friend. If all you have is the law... The law has the power to do one thing, surface or identify your sin. The law has the power to accuse, but it does not have the power to release. Only God, the judge, has that power, and God has not judged that your sins or my sins can be released apart from some sort of payment. But God has solved that. And this is the good news, the gospel, or if you will, the new covenant, the New Testament. What does the New Testament do that the Old Testament doesn't do? Well, the, the New Testament explicitly, it is implicit, let me be clear, in the Old Testament, but it is explicit in the New Testament in that God has now sent His only begotten Son that He might die for me. My typical payment for my sins, your typical payment for your sins, would be your serving time, your paying a price, your dying. But instead, God has good news that if we would but look to His Son who died in our place, we would be saved. Now that's good news. The problem with that good news is we often get weak in believing it's enough. We believed it was enough, but today, because of that circumstance or that circumstance or these circumstances in our lives, these situations that have cropped up, or perhaps our own proclivity toward drifting, we become weak, or we return to a former pattern 
we return, as it were, as a dog to his vomit, to a pig to its waller. We have a natural tendency or proclivity to do just that. And God gives us the book of Hebrews because in this context, these people had this tendency when they got weak as regards Jesus or somebody came in with a new idea, a better idea, or some counsel or some, some uh, perhaps uh, wrote a book, went on some sort of speaking tour, uh, put, opened up a YouTube channel, and they began to debunk this new covenant and said, what we need to do as Hebrews is we need to get back to the old ways, the old paths. By the way, I'm a fan of the old paths in many respects. I'm just not a fan of the old paths theologically. Because the old paths theologically will lend you to hell. Because Judaism, apart from the gospel, or the law-keeping apart from the gospel, or the Ten Commandments apart from the gospel, or following some sort of external code, moralism, I'm a moral man, I'm a good man. Invariably, you'll talk to people, on what basis do you have any confidence in heaven? What basis do you think you're going to heaven? Why do you think if you die, you're going to go to heaven? Why? Invariably, the response of modern man is, because I am a good person. Or some variation of that. Well, I'm trying harder. Or I'm a better person than I used to be. The problem with that is that it sounds good to human ears and it sounds offensive to God. Because ultimately, you recall that if, if the solution is you, you're the hero. If the solution is you, if you're the solution to your problem, if the, problem, if the solution to man's problem is resident within man, then why in the world, friend, did God send his only begotten son to die for you who don't need him? You realize that putting the emphasis upon you is a denial of the coming of Christ. So the book of Hebrews is written to people who, having come to Christ, are now getting weak. Having come to Christ, are now tempted to revert, or tempted, as it were, to return to these external things, as if these external things are the fix or solution to the sin problem in their lives. Well, I'll tell you, friend, there's a lot of theorists today, there's a lot of folks who claim to be pundits of what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with this country. <laughs> and I'm not begrudging them the platform, I'm not begrudging them their voice, I'm not begrudging them their ideas, but I will tell you, be careful any idea that forgets God. Because humankind cannot be served ultimately by humankind. We can only be served by the miracle working power of a God who gives his only begotten son and then his Holy Spirit to live within us to actually change us. The change that man longs for is not resident within man. It's not resident in his heart. It's not resident in his mind. And it's certainly not resident in his hands. The change this country needs, the change that every country needs, the change that every man needs is found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
let us not think otherwise. So this is the best time to be a Christian in the history of this country. Because at no time in the history of this country do Christians matter nearly as much as they matter today. You want to be light in the darkness, salt in the world? Well, brother, today's your day. You want to stand up and stand out for Jesus? Well, you have every opportunity. And I trust you will. And I trust you are. And I trust you have. But even if you have not, I trust you'll draw a line in the sand and say, enough already. My life will count for Christ. Because I will cling to Christ because he's the only hope. All of which brings us to this paragraph. We're going to begin reading in verse 13. But as we do, I would uh, remind you of what he has just concluded saying in the previous verse 12 he's reminding them that he doesn't want them to be sluggish and that they would be imitators of those who through faith inherit promises so the purpose that he's now going to turn to in the paragraph we're about to read is to say who inherits the promises or can we trust the promises or why would we be imitators let's line them up let's pick out somebody He's going to pick out Abraham. Why would we look at Abraham and say, imitate Abraham? Because Abraham is a man of faith who inherits the promises. He's a man of faith who, when he died, went to be with God. He was a man of faith who, by his faith, showed his faith and went to be with God. So be an imitator of that man who held on to the end. Now, if there's ever an example in the Scripture of a man who had a right to be sluggish, humanly speaking, or perhaps a man who we would anticipate being sluggish, it would be Abraham. You'll remember the story. I'm going to belabor it momentarily and then read the passage because I want you to understand the backdrop. God tells Abram, not his, hadn't had his name changed yet, tells Abram in a place called Haran, not Iran, but Haran, and he tells him, I want you to go to this place you've never been, and I'm going to make you a great nation. Genesis 12. Then in Genesis 15, he reiterates that very same promise. He makes the promise a second time, I'm going to make you a great nation. And from your loins, there will be a son, and I through him will make your descendants as numerous as stars in the sky and sands of the sea. You know you can't count them, stars or sand. And God makes a promise in Genesis 12, Genesis 15. He reiterates it a third time in Genesis 17. Then ultimately he comes to Genesis 22. Now Genesis 22 is a significant chapter because God tells Abram, now Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. But before I do that, I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. The record of that occurs in Genesis 22. He's about to quote Genesis 22 in this paragraph. What happens there? You'll remember that God tells him to do this. He makes preparation, puts his son on an altar, and uh, he has the knife 
the dagger, which he's going to use to kill his son, raised, and the scripture says that God stops his hand by an angel and says, no, no, I know now that you believe. And I swear, you'll see this, we're going to read Genesis 22 in a moment, he's going to say, and I swear that I will keep my promise. The writer of Hebrews is going to point out those two things. He's going to say in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God promised, and then in Genesis 22, he swore that he would keep his promise. He took a vow. He took an oath. To understand that, think with me for a moment. He's going to appeal to a human situation, so I'll appeal to one. Let's assume for the sake of conversation that you and I have an agreement, an agreement, and it's a it's a handshake agreement. It's a verbal agreement. It is a pen and paper agreement. Let's call it a contract. We have an agreement. It's a promise. <clears throat> but somehow one of us objects to the way it's carried out, and so we take the other one to court. And we stand before a judge. And on, in that courtroom, what happened outside of the courtroom is secondary to what's now happening inside the courtroom, because there is a different authority now being imposed upon this proceeding. This relationship between me and you is now going to add a new dynamic. And what is that? You're going to raise your hand before a judge, and you're going to swear to tell the truth. And if you don't, if you lie, then you've now committed perjury. You've broken an oath and disagreeing with a friend over a promise is one thing, but perjury in a courtroom will send you to jail. One of those things is more important than the other. One of those things has more gravity than the others. One of those is more significant than the others. Don't you dare stand before a judge and raise your hand and swear to tell the truth and then lie. The consequences are more significant than you have calculated. So he's going to point that out, that God is going to use two methods of affirmation with Abraham. And he's going to say that because Abraham believed the promise and the oath, Abraham was a man of faith. So be imitators of a man who believes the promise, and the oath. Let's read it, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Now this is a reference to Genesis 22, saying, and he quotes Genesis 22, and I'll read it, and we'll turn there in a moment. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, meaning endured, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. A vow. He had a promise, now he guarantees it with a vow or an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, 
in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All roads in Hebrews lead to Melchizedek. We're getting there next week, chapter 7. But for the moment, we continue to sort of be teased in that direction. Why does any of this matter for us? Well, again, let's think of this particular story of Abraham. He is holding up Abraham as sort of the poster child or the example that we should follow. Be imitators of those who are not sluggish. Be imitators of those who hang on. If you, in order to understand the chronology of Abraham's life, you have to go back to understand Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15. We're not going to belabor that this morning. But I will tell you this. God made a promise that he would be a father of a great nation. He gives him that promise at the age of 75. Now, how many 75-year-old men in this room or watching would believe such a promise? Going to make you a father of a great nation. You're 75 years old. Compounding that, he's married, and he's married with no children, and he's married to a woman who's nine years younger. She's 66. Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. And Sarah's going to bear a child. Now, if you're looking around, you're thinking, I'm 75, she's 66. What do I do with this information? Turns out Abraham did exactly what God intended for him to do with that information. He believed God. So Exodus 12 tells us that Abraham set off for Her, uh, out of Haran and he moved to what today we call Canaan or the promised land, ancient Canaan, modern Israel, and he lived there. Now we know that he was not a perfect man. He established a relationship with a handmaiden, a woman named Hagar. They had a son named Ishmael. Ishmael is not the child of Sarah. He's not the child of promise. He's not the child that God was talking about in Genesis 12. Back in Haran, he's not any of that. He's not the child of promise. He's not the child that God's talking about. He's just the child man provided. Man's all the time trying to do an end run around the pleasure of God, the promises of God, the work of God, the kindness of God, the goodness of God. Man's all the time thinking somehow we got to take matters in our own hands. we got to get this done ourselves. Abraham was a flawed man, but a faithful man. You say, how can those two things be the same? Friend, everybody is flawed. I'm looking around the room at some of the most faithful men I know. We are mistaken if we expect perfection from any human being. There is only one perfect human being. Turns out he's not American.
turns out he's not European. Turns out he's not African. Turns out he's not Latin. Turns out he's not even of this world. But that doesn't stop us from holding up men with respect and honor. Just as Abraham, a flawed man. And the writer of Hebrews says, God made a promise, verse 13, to Abraham. And he wanted to guarantee that promise for Abraham. Now, why would God do that? Well, you'd have to ask God because he doesn't tell us exactly, except that he implies that the reason he does that is to encourage Abraham. That Abraham would be faithful to the end. That Abraham, he's asking Abraham to believe a lot, to take a lot at face value. Think about it. I'm going to ask you, Abraham, to believe that I'm going to provide a son. Now, we know the rest of the story. Abraham doesn't have Isaac until he's 99 years old. He gets the promise at 75. It's 25 years. Now, I don't know about you, but you're getting older and older and older. You're looking at your wife, and she's getting more and more and more and more. What women do, they don't get older. They just change. (laughs) And you're looking around, and you're doing the math. You're doing the calculations. You're not ignorant. You don't have your head in the sand. Do you think Abraham had an earthly reason to maybe get a little weak? Maybe get a little sluggish? Maybe get a little distracted? Turned out he did. Ishmael. He got a little distracted. And so in the midst of all of that, God says, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to provide a son. And I'm going to then continue your gymnasium experience. Not only 24 years before the promise is actually bears fruit, but then as Isaac grows a little, I don't know exactly how old he would have been when Genesis 22 happens, he said, I want you to take him up on this mountain, build an altar, and sacrifice him. Hello? We waited for him for a quarter of a century. He's the child of promise. Now, there is a thousand reasons why this is all a terrible plan. It cannot be the right plan. And yet, the Bible says Abraham did it. You got to turn to Genesis 22. Don't don't miss just one verse here. You can read a lot, but, but Genesis 22 is where it all happens. Verse 15. the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, by myself I have sworn, there's, there's our word, there's our verb, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that's on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Okay, just step back with me for a moment. Abraham, in the preceding paragraph, has taken a knife over the chest of his son, he's going to kill his son. God stays his hand with an angel. And then God speaks in the paragraph we just read. 
because you have done this, then I swear. I take an oath. And I invoke the same name that you invoke if you're going in a courtroom in the name of God. So help me God. If you'll permit a minute of levity, just because I can feel the tension in the room. If somebody's going to swear by something, then it has to be something that has credibility, right? You can uh, swear by the surety that the sun is going to come up in the east. Well, that's pretty solid. I mean, I've lived a long time, and the sun has never not come up in the east. Somebody swears by the sun coming up in the east, that's a rock-solid thing. Now, if somebody swears by Mississippi State football going 12-0, different game, different game. In this case, Genesis 22, God says, by myself I have sworn. I, God, swear in the name of Almighty God. He makes the point in Hebrews that God could swear by none greater. If you want to amp up, raise the stakes, if you want to make it more weighty, more significant, then, then swear by something greater. Don't, don't swear by something that's weak or that's going to fall apart. Rather, swear by something that's greater. Because there is something greater than the sun coming up in the east. There is the one who actually causes the sun to come up in the east. The one who created the sun. The one who created the east. The one who makes sense of east and west and north and south, and on and on we could go. And that one, the ultimate one, the only one who could truly put an end to everything is the name Almighty God. And in Genesis 22, God says, by myself, by my name, I swear that your offspring your offspring shall be as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. But what you can't tell in Genesis 22 is the change in plurality. We don't have time, but I would just simply tell you that this is the argument the apostle makes in Genesis, rather in Galatians 3. We don't have time to go there. But Galatians 3, he quotes this particular paragraph. And he says the second use of the word offspring here is singular. You can't see it in English. We're not reading Hebrew this morning. So, but I will tell you the first offspring here, your offspring shall be as numerous. That's plural. But then he says, and in your offspring, verse 18, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That offspring is singular. That's the argument that Paul uses in Galatians 3 to say... How can he go from this large funnel, all these stars, sands, uh, sand uh, of the sea, and so forth, down to this narrow one, one person? What, what does he mean by that? Well, Paul interprets that rightly in Galatians 3 and says, of course, he's talking about one who would come. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the true son of Abraham, the final son, the ultimate son of Abraham. 
So you see that this is where the oath occurs. Now let's go back to Hebrews. So when God made a promise to Abraham, he had no one greater by whom to swear. He swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his vow, his promise and his oath, by two unchangeable things, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So what are we to see, first of all? How can we have the assurance of heaven? We can have the assurance of heaven because God does not lie. Because God has not lied. He did not lie to Abraham. He promised and then he swore. And so be an example or be a follower of the example known as Abraham. Because you too can find heaven. You too can have the assurance of heaven. And it's based not in something flimsy like a football schedule putting your hopes in 19 and 20 year old men hello that's not what we do what we do is we put ourselves our hope as it were in the character and the strength and the nature of almighty God it is impossible for God to lie he has promised and he swore now friend who are you going to believe you're going to go back to the old covenant you're going to go back to trusting in sacrifices you're going to go back to trusting in your own somehow repentance, trusting in your own uh, work, you're trusting in the sacrificial system, the temple, and the priests, and the vestments, and the system of animal death, and so forth. You're going to trust in the blood of animals. You're going to trust in all that, or are you going to trust in the Word of Almighty God? One of those is greater than the other. Some of you know, uh, I'm going to be doing a funeral in Alabama this week, assisting in a funeral. Uh, one of our dear friends, a 30-year friend for us, uh, who we worked alongside in uh, our church life in Alabama, uh, has passed away with a brain tumor. I'll do a part of that funeral on Tuesday of this week. And I will stand before her grieving husband and her grieving children and her grieving grandchildren and I will say to them the same thing that I have said to you for the last 15 years and said to them for 15 years prior to that I will say the same thing that I have said all my ministry life I will point to these words let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions, rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? What is Jesus saying in John 14? I'll tell you what he's saying. 
He's saying, you believe in God, believe in me. He's not a liar, and I'm not a liar. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. Let not your heart be troubled. Because if you can believe the Father, you can believe the Son. I want to tell you, friends, if you're looking for a dog and pony show, if you're looking star for stars and meteors and some kind of crazy extraterrestrial proof that God loves you, that God cares about your life, and that God's involved in your circumstances, and that God intends to rescue you from your sin and to take you home to a place that is eternal and where there is no more dying and no more crying and no more sorrow and no more pain. If you need a dog and pony show to prove that, you're not going to get it. But what you are going to get is a promise and a vow, a promise and an oath. It was good enough for Abraham who believed it so much he was ready to take a knife and plunge it into the chest of his only son. The son where the promise was resident. The entire promise was based on the life of this boy. Now he's got a knife over his chest. So what kind of faith do you have? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, don't be running back to Judaism, but instead hold fast to the hope set before us. Hold fast to the hope that is not of this world, that is not based upon the promises of man. Man is a liar. Even the best men can be duplicitous. Even the best men can withhold full information. Even the best men can compromise. Even the best men have failed because that's what even the best men do in this life and in every life before. We are sinners. Our hope is not in the affairs of man or the work of man or the deeds of man. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope rather is in the work of God who gave us his word and his vow, his word and his oath. And it is impossible for this God to lie. And if you believe in him, believe in his son. There's a second thing quickly, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There is not only a sure promise, but there is also a sure anchor for our hope. There is a sure word that we base our hope upon, and there's also a sure anchor for our hope. Let me remind you of something. God does not expect you to believe something that has no foundation. God is not calling upon you to cling to something that does not have significant validation significant reality. 
Listen, this story of Jesus dying, going to the grave, coming out of the grave in three days, the world says that is fantasy. And God says it's a fact. And he makes clear it's a fact because Jesus in his resurrection state doesn't return to heaven for some 40 days. We don't know exactly how long between the resurrection and the ascension, but Jesus is alive, and he, he makes these appearances. And as a result, we, we have confidence because Jesus is attested to. He is seen by them and those and him and her and the, them. And, and, and so the, the verification, if you will, the validation of Jesus being alive is evident. It's there. Again and again, the Bible testifies of this truth. And then there is extra-biblical attestation. It is a profoundly witnessed event that Jesus is now alive. He is witnessed as dead. The Romans know how to kill you, by the way. Romans are experts. They know how to kill you, and they know how to kill you slow. They know how to kill you hard. They know how to kill you painfully. It's called crucifixion. Nobody, nobody was better crucifixion than the Romans. Jesus was dead. Three days later, he's alive, and he's attested again and again and again, and he reveals himself again and again and again. Jesus is not asking you to believe something that doesn't have attestation or witnesses. Rather, it is a fact. So if Jesus is once dead, now alive, and Jesus then ascends to the Father and promises that he will send the Holy Spirit, and you, having professed him in faith, having received the Holy Spirit, you have the inner witness right now in your own life that this is true, that the Holy Spirit is in fact attesting in your own heart this is the truth you believe this why do you believe this the world says don't believe this the world says it doesn't matter but the holy spirit has come to live within you to prove or if you will to witness that this is the truth he, god has not left you with a pig and a poke god has not left you with smoke and mirrors god has not revealed himself in some sort of shell game this is the truth it is the truth and because it's the truth when god says i go to prepare a place for you that's exactly what he means and so who is this jesus if he is our sure hope is he if he is our sure and steadfast anchor for our hope then friend if you if you depart jesus if you leave jesus and return to judaism or you depart jesus and return to some other basis for your eternal hope then what have you done i'll tell you what you've done you just given up the winning hand and you folded. You just quit. You quit the way of life. You quit the path to life. You quit the road to glory. You quit the only one who can get you there because he's the only one who knows how to get there. He's the only one who has gotten there. And everybody who's gotten there since him has gotten there because they followed him. So we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now this matters. Just, just a minute. Why does that matter? He's the one who enters behind the curtain. Because in, a, in the next chapter, he's going to talk about this character, this guy named Melchizedek. Well, who is Melchizedek? Well, that's for next week, but let me just give you the quick of it. He is a king, and he's a priest. Now, the high priest is a priest, but he's not a king. And the king is a king, but he's not a priest. The only king priest of God mentioned in the Old Testament 
is this guy, Melchizedek. Which means being the priest is one thing, but a king priest got to be better, right? Being a king is one thing, but being a king priest has got to be better. So who's greater than David, the king of Israel? Melchizedek. Who's greater than Aaron, the first high priest? Who's greater than Levi, the tribe, the head of the tribe from which all priests, even the high priest, are named? Melchizedek, because he is the king priest. So Jesus is not a priest like Levi. He's a priest like Melchizedek. Why does that matter? Because the high priest has one job that is most significant. He has the job that no one else gets. Because the Old Testament requires that on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would go behind the veil or the curtain. You'll remember that the ceiling, that the, the temple is divided into two significant parts one is a perfect cube, 30 feet by 30 feet, by, rather 15 feet by 15 feet, 15. There's an enormous curtain that separates that. And on, the, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, one day a year, so holy that they tie a rope around his ankle, and there are bells sewn into the hem of his high priestly robe. He's in there, he's making sacrifice, he's moving around. You can hear the bells tinkling and ringing. And at some point, if, if he dies because God judges him because he's come in there with dirty hands or dirty heart, and he is mocking God and is presuming upon the, they, they can't go in and get him because only the high priest can go behind that curtain, only. So they have a rope on his ankle, and they drag him out. And that's pretty serious. If you're the only guy who can go in there, and you can only go in there one time a year, and you can only go in there for the right reason with the right heart with the right uh, representation. You can go in. That's, that's the unique job of the high priest, the Day of Atonement. You go behind the curtain. And what does he say? We have this, verse 19, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. I tell you what, friend, you need a high priest but you need a better high priest than those that can go in there and die. You need a high priest who can go in there and never die. Who can go in there and live. Because as we shall see next week, he is the eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We have a sure and steadfast anchor. And where is our anchor lodged? It is lodged behind the curtain where God is. If you don't trust in Jesus and if you flee from Jesus, then your anchor has given way. And you, friend, are adrift. I beg of you, be reconciled to God and come to the one who has gone behind the curtain to do your business, to make sacrifice for you and to make a way for you to have an anchor 
that is not made of iron, but is actually made of the person of the Son of Almighty God. Who has access to God today on your behalf? Only the Son. You believe in God? Believe in me. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, behind the curtain, with God, there you can be. Don't fail to cling to Jesus today. Be an imitator of Abraham and be a follower of Jesus. It's the only way. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for giving us grace. We love you so. We're mindful of your kindness in Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the fact that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We, we don't have to, to get better to come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to believe that, cling to that, hope in that, trust in that. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your work today. Thank you for work in our lives. We love you so. We need you. Please help us to believe. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.